gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Ron and his family were putting on WrestleMania-style events back in the 50s and 60s in their territories and packing out baseball stadiums with gigantic wrestling events long before the name WrestleMania was ever uttered. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history, as told by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast. The man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Stud Cast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, it was about 20 years ago this week. Somewhere at that point, we lost a really true gentleman and one of the greatest in the history of wrestling. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dave, right off the top here. Uh, we lost uh, one of the best commentators in the history of the sport. Uh, and a guy that worked for me in three different wrestling companies, he was just uh, remarkable at what he did. And uh, we're talking about Gordon Soley. And, uh, you know, I want to say how sorry I am for, for what happened to Gordon at an earlier age than it should have. And I just love this guy. He was a tremendous at his job. And he was respected and admired by probably every wrestler that he ever spoke of. Uh, he was just really, really phenomenal at what he did. And uh, and to Gordon's family out there, if you're listening by any chance, I just uh, really, really love Gordon. And and I hope that uh, y'all are getting over what happened and at the same time appreciative of uh, what a great man he was. And I'm sure you are. And boy, he really seemed like a, a true gentleman in real life. I had an opportunity to meet him briefly. And, and he it just seemed like everybody wanted to be Gordon's friend. Yeah. And he was the type of guy that he was everybody's friend and uh, just a great, great guy and uh, irreplaceable as far as a commentator for a wrestling program, probably as good, if not the best there ever was. About 20 years ago this week, the great Gordon Soley. All right, Ron, I know we got a lot to get to today. So where are we riding today? Well, we're going to begin, as always, with uh, the old today's training. And I, that constant objective of mine to make the listeners the most knowledgeable uh, in all aspects of wrestling, of any people that listen to podcasts out there, wrestling podcasts especially, uh, we're going to put on the owner's hat today. And uh, we're going to take an educational look inside what was 
the, like the most uh, difficult decisions, what it was like to be a owner of a company and uh, to have to make these extremely difficult decisions that are going to affect the, the course of your business. Uh, in, my, in my case, we're talking about Southeastern because I was a young guy and, and I, I came across some really tremendously difficult decisions. And we're going to talk about one of those today. Uh, we're currently at this point in the summer of 1976. I've got a pretty fast-growing wrestling company. In fact, in the last three months, it's just on fire, basically. And um, I've been looking at the Knoxville Coliseum for the future, but I'm beginning to think uh, the future is pretty close. There's a huge decision for me on the horizon, and uh, we're going to talk about that today. When the decision was, or am I going to stay in Chilhowee Park, or am I going to move to the Coliseum permanently? So it's a critical decision. It could make me hugely successful, or it could make me an ultimately a failure, potentially. So uh, for all of y'all out there today, pull your owner hat down good this, th today with me, and I'm going to take us all along for a good ride today. So we're also going to look at the first Knoxville event in August of 1976, Friday, August the 6th to be exact. We're also going to break down the loaded TV of Saturday, July 31st, the show that promoted the August 6th card. And uh, we're going to take uh, we're going to get some more of that great actual audios from those TVs back in 1976, as well as we're going to talk about the fireball that burned Bob Armstrong and the continued uh, build up to the Terry Funk World Championship match coming in October. And then we're going to get the results of the card of August the 6th. And we'll talk then about the attendance that night and the attendance for that entire week. The learning tree question today is. What do you think of Flair as traveling world champion? And do you think it hurt the National Wrestling Alliance in the 1980s that the champ was losing so often and then regaining the belt days later? That's a great question. Love it. Man, I was right. I said you had a lot to talk about today. <laughs> so where do we start first on this thing? Okay, so we're going to begin, obviously, with that today's training. And in this one, we're going to put on that owner's hat, like I said earlier. I don't think we've had the owner's hat on before, but we're going to put it on this time. And we're at the beginning of the thought process that I'm involved in about moving permanently to the Knoxville Coliseum and becoming the primary tenant in the largest public building in that part of the country. Uh, it was a goal of mine since before I purchased the wrestling rights to Knoxville in October of 1974. First time I ever saw the wrestling program there, probably four months before I bought the company. I was like, wow, man, uh, you know, and uh, I, I drove by the Knoxville Coliseum. I thought they were wrestling in the Coliseum. They weren't at this point. But I looked at that building and I said, wow, man, what a great place for wrestling. But turns out when I buy the company, I'm not in that building. But I always thought it was a must to operate full time in that building every week, you know, and it was a major reason I decided to buy that wrestling company. Informed Southeastern Wrestling was because of that building. The Coliseum, obviously, was the largest building in the city. And in order for wrestling to be as big as possible in Knoxville, it was the only building that would hold all the potential wrestling fans that I believed I could create if I was the owner there. So a quick study of Knoxville's building history. And I looked at this uh, just recently. It goes back as far as the Opera House that was built there in downtown on the main street of downtown in Knoxville in 1872. That was the biggest building there at that point. 
And that building was later converted into a movie theater. It was called the Lyric. Uh, that theater became the home of wrestling in the 1930s when wrestling started coming to Knoxville in the 1930s. And it was also the home of my grandfather, Roy, and his brothers, Herb and Jack, who became stars in the Lyric Theater back in the 1930s, into the 40s, on into the 50s. So Chilhowee Park became the venue for wrestling after the Lyric Theater and the home of wrestling for the Kazana brothers that I bought the company from. Uh, that's where they ran their matches. Knoxville Coliseum was built in 64, but it was considered too large and expensive for the wrestling promoter, the brother named John Kazana, that owned the territory when I purchased it from him. He thought the building was just too big and it was too expensive to hold wrestling in. In 1974, as a lot of people know, everybody that's been keeping up with Studcast know I bought John Kazana and I formed Southeastern Championship Wrestling. So Southeastern ran its first match ever on October 25th, 1974, and we ran in the indoors building in the Chilhowee Park. And let's take a look back at how the Knoxville Coliseum was going to become the future home of Southeastern Wrestling. So we started first night, October 25th, 1974. Getting into the Coliseum was a long, drawn-out process for me. On January 24th, 1975, 14 weeks after I ran my first show in Chihuahua Park, I ran my first event in the Coliseum, the first wrestling event in the Coliseum. I don't think the Kazana brothers had ever run in there at all. So I ran the first Knoxville Coliseum event, January 24th, 1975. Uh, we returned there seven weeks later, March 23rd, 75. Five weeks after that, we were back on April 27th, 1975. And that night, I wrestled NWA champion Jack Briscoe for the championship. Uh, we wouldn't return there in the Coliseum for 20 weeks. By that time, but when we went back, we went back for three straight shows in a row at the Coliseum. We were there on November 7th when I wrestled the Assassin in a hair versus mask match. We went back in the Coliseum on the 14th for the debut of the big man himself, Andre the Giant. And then again the following week on November 22nd with another world title match. This time, Jack Briscoe wrestled Ron Wright. Uh, we wrestled a total of six times in the Coliseum in 1975. Now, I learned a lesson that year about the Coliseum. It was much more expensive than I thought it was going to be, uh, and it cost me money to go there. Actually, lost money in some of the Coliseum shows, but I knew it was critical for the future of Knoxville Wrestling, and therefore it seemed like a good investment toward the future of this company of Southeastern. I still believed it was going to someday be the home of Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville. So let's talk about what happens with the Coliseum in 1976. We returned there three times in the winter of 1976, had a match there on January 18th, we had a match there about a month later, February 22nd, and just about a month after that on March 14th. We wouldn't wrestle in the Coliseum again that year until the fall of 1976, which is pretty close to where we are in our present-day studcast today. On September 17th in 1976, we're going, to, we're going to go in there on the 17th, and we're going to be there on September 24th, and we're going to go back there on October 10th, for the NWA world title match between me and Terry Funk. Now, we only wrestled six times in the Coliseum in 1976, the same number exactly as we wrestled in 1975 there. But there was a huge difference in the territory at this point, a huge difference in our television. 
was a huge difference in our talent. And the biggest thing, there was a huge difference in our attendance between 1975 and 1976. By the fall of 1976, I felt we were ready to become the best that we could be. And that best that we could be was in the Coliseum full time. So as an owner of a wrestling company, with intentions of changing my major building in my major market, uh, I better have my ducks in a row. <laughs> and it was That's a big decision to make uh, with any company. You change, your, change any place. You change your venue. You change your building. You have your shop moves from one place to another. It's a major thing. And to move your wrestling is a major move for a promoter. It's a risky move. And it could have cost me everything if it failed. So when you leave a facility where wrestling's been recognized as, as the home for wrestling for many years, there's likely to be some heat. And uh, I'm talking about Chilhowee Park. Uh, they had had wrestling there for many, many years, 52 weeks a year. And now all of a sudden, uh, it's, it's about to change for them. Uh, and Chilhowee Park had been the home of wrestling for a long, long time, for maybe 20 years at least. So Chilhowee Park is operating as a business, just like I was operating as a business. They were invested in their relationship with me, and I was invested in the relationship with them. John Kazan had been in that facility, as I said, 52 weeks a year, year after year, before Southeastern ever came. Southeastern dropped that number to 46 weeks in 1975 and 46 weeks in 1976. So when you think about this and put those hats on as an owner, how do you diplomatically tell somebody like the Chilhowee Park people that your plans are to cut those number of weeks dramatically, that you may want to run more Coliseum events and fewer nights with them without that closing their door on your return if the idea fails? <laughs> it's pretty easy. They would go, well, yeah, go ahead and do it if you want to, but uh, you're burning the bridge here, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Where are you going to go if this don't work for you, you know? So uh, what happens if your Coliseum idea uh, is a bust and you lose Jill Howie Park? Wow. Now what do you do? Uh, so how does Southeastern Wrestling survive if you have no building to wrestle in? Obviously, you're not going to survive. So now that we're all wearing that owner's hat, uh, answer that one for me. Uh, what do we have? What we really have here at this point is a, an owner's dilemma. I mean, we, we're, we're in a box here in a way, and it's going to take some thought a lot of time. So uh, now let's look at the other side of that coin. How do you get the Coliseum management to allow you to book 52 events in their busy facility, which it was a bu busy building, and potentially lose most of them if something goes wrong? You've got these 52 nights that they said, okay, we're going to give you all these Fridays as an example. But uh, about halfway through, you're not drawing anybody and you have to say, well, I can't stay. They've given up their people that they could have rented those nights to. And now they may sit there with an empty building. Uh, so if something goes wrong, what happens then to them? What happens for whatever reason? If you don't get your attendance, you anticipate. And if you have to leave the Coliseum, what happens then? Where do you go if you can't go back to Chilhowee Park? Where do you go? <laughs> right. <laughs> What do you do? I mean, you've invested your money. You've invested your family's uh, lifestyle. You've invested your your future. Everything could potentially be gone. Pot business could potentially end right there. And uh, so it's another owner's dilemma as to how you handle a Coliseum. 
So this type of delicate negotiation between Southeastern, between Chilhowee Park, between the Knoxville Coliseum, it, it took time. It took patience. It took persistence. And ultimately, it took trust between all three of us, my company, between the park and with the Coliseum. So I couldn't afford to burn my bridge back to the park if my idea didn't work. I also couldn't afford to commit to the Coliseum if my idea didn't work. <laughs> so welcome to business ownership out there, folks. Right. <laughs> you know, this is a perfect example of a tremendous difficult decisions that the owner of companies have to make every day. And one so thing for sure, Ron, is, is a Coliseum situation like that. I mean, they could have anybody from the Harlem Globetrotters wanting to come to town to maybe college basketball, uh, a, a circus sometimes would come into the Coliseum, I'm sure. So a lot of events that they would also have, and you were asking for every Friday night. Yeah. And and, and in some cases, Dave, uh, you know, the rent was based upon a percentage of the gate. Mm -hmm. So if you got the circus there and you're charging uh, $20 a ticket, <laughs> you know, Right. And they're going to get to twenty percent of that gate, uh, and uh, it's there's no it's that's like a no brainer. So yeah. you know it's a delicate, delicate conversation you have with the Coliseum people about you know, and they've got to go. Well, how do you think you're going to do? Well, we've been there six times, but we really haven't drawn a huge major crowd in those twelve times we've been there. Six and seventy five, right. six and seventy six. We yeah. haven't proven ourselves. But one thing that you did have that was a constant was the TV show and tremendous ratings. And I'm sure that that's what you were counting on building that new audience. That's and it was working. It was happening in 76. We could see it by the jumps in the houses from week to week. And uh, don't think that I did not take those rating books into these meetings with the Coliseum. Right. And they're not in the television industry. But when you sit there and say, look, we've got 70% share of everybody's watching TV at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon is watching right. my show. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's going to translate into money. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I, I took those books in with me for darn sure. And I slid them across the table to the management and said, take a look at these numbers. I even took a television sales manager with me to push, <laughs> push my product for me. Right. You know? So we're, what's going to happen here is uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this one today. You mentioned it already, and we're about ha only about uh, halfway there with working this miracle that I'm talking about here, you know, trying to make the Chill Howie Park comfortable with the situation, trying to make the Coliseum comfortable with it, trying to make me comfortable with it. You know, am I, am I going to make a success out of all this? So I'm sorry, but uh, I'm going to have to leave us here today, David. About right where we are, and I'm going to finish this next week because uh, next week I plan on talking about how I get this done and kept everybody happy. Yeah, I can't believe you're going to leave us hanging like that. Thanks, Ryan. All right, so what's up now? What are we doing? <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, you know, when you think about it, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm a 28-year-old guy. And I got all this going on as a young guy that's uh, running his first company. My future and my family's future. It's all hanging in the balance here. And uh, since these today's training segments are, are put us all in the same boat here, kind of, we all wore the hat today. So next week, we're going to find out if we can stay afloat until I can solve this. Okay. So we'll come back to the answer to this one on next week. 
You keep us all guessing, no doubt about it. Leave us wanting more. So where are we headed now? Where are we riding? Well, we're going to go back to August 6, 1976, to the Chihuahua Park Amphitheater in Knoxville. Uh, this time, uh, we're not in the small building. We're going to be in the amphitheater. We're going to get decent weather. Uh, the opening match on that Friday night is George McCrary versus Kurt Von Steiger. And the second match was Mike Stallings against his Kurt's brother, Carl, Carl Von Steiger, the Southeastern Tag Champions. But they're not defending their belts. They're in single matches to start the evening. Third match was Ron Wright and the newcomer, the Gladiator, against Louis Tillette and the great Mephisto. The first of two main events that night was for the Southeastern title, Jimmy Golan against the champion, Tora Tanaka, who's managed by, obviously, Homer Odell. And the last main event is a steel cage match. Uh, for the first time that night, we actually had a steel cage. When I went there, they had no cage. They put wire around the ring. and. Uh, I just I couldn't wait until my company got profitable enough to build an honest to God steel cage like everybody else had. So <laughs> right. so this is the night we debut the actual first steel cage that Knoxville Wrestling had ever seen. And uh matches Don Carson and myself. And before we get to the results of this card, let's go back six days earlier to the TV on Saturday, July thirty-first. And that's the TV that's going to be promoting this Friday night card with the steel cage as the main event. Now, we've been having some very good opening shots on our television with less, you know, and that chroma key side of the set, uh, especially for every one of the TV shows in July. We made a point of using that chroma key side of the set to get that big, huge steel shot behind him when we open the shows. Uh, by comparison, the opening shot in this TV, though, was absolutely horrifying compared to what we had been showing. So Les is joined at the set by the returning Dick Steinborn. He'd not been seen in Southeastern since June 4th, the night of what I call the Southeastern slaughter, which was about eight weeks earlier. And he got injured on that night as I was. We actually both went yeah. to the hospital that night. Yeah. And he'd been out for two months. So he was such a great talker, Steinborn, and a commentary man. He's worked sometimes with Gordon Soley on the Florida TV as a second man mm -hmm. that I, I put him out there almost the entire show with Les. And this is one of his first days back. Uh, they made a very smooth, a comfortable pair, man. Uh, and I would be doing more of it in the future because of Steinborn's ability to get it done. There was something very different about how Steinborn was going to be used as a babyface masked man. And he's going to be called the gladiator. Uh, Dick Steinborn was not going to be booked on any cards, <laughs> but the Gladiator was. So uh, even the fans that, that uh, weren't going to see what was happening for a few weeks, it's going to take them a little bit of time to figure it out. Dick Steinborn is going to be seen on a, lot, a lot on TV, but he's never going to be seen the same time as the Gladiator is on television. So uh -huh. obviously, Dick Steinborn and the Gladiator are one and the same. Uh -huh. right? But in, in the next few months, this unique angle, I don't think anybody had ever done this before, this unique angle is going to drive the heels crazy. They're going to go, wait a minute, who is this gladiator? And how come he talks just like uh, Dick Steinborn? And why? <laughs> and, you know, they, they got, the heels are going to get really, really crazy about this. You know, like, what is, what's going on here with Steinborn? You know, who is, who's the real gladiator? And I'm going to really take it another level before it's all over. 
I'm going to have a guy that looks exactly like Steinbor, and I'm going to have them both sitting side by side. And then the Bahils are going to go, wait a minute. <laughs> what are they doing now? You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to have some fun. The fans are going to love this angle because they're going to get into what's going on. And they're going to go, wow, this is good. So this show opens up with Steinborn and Les sitting at the set together. Now, the fans in the studio, they can only see when they look at the set, all they see is this chroma key blue background. They don't see anything on it. But uh, nothing is on it until it's the magic of the chroma key, the miracle of chroma key. It was developed by CBS, and they had sent it down to their affiliates. Channel 10, WBR, Knoxville was an affiliate of CBS, and they started me with using this chroma key. It was such a beautiful, beautiful concept. So the people in the studio can see nothing behind Les and Dick Steinborn except this blue background. And uh, so I'm upstairs in the control room, and I can see this fantastic shot behind the two of them that's in, on that chroma key background. So the cameras get a tight shot of Les as he's describing what's in the upcoming show. And on the set behind him is this fantastic shot of Bob Armstrong. His head is surrounded in a huge ball of fire from the wow. night before. Wow. In fact, you can't see any part of his head for the flames. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's a, the shot is just breathtaking. It's like, wow, what in the heck? You know, so... The fans haven't seen it yet. The fans in the studio, they haven't seen it because only people in the in the studio upstairs in the control room can see what's actually behind them. So when Les finishes telling everybody about the show that day, the camera pans back. And the studio audience, now they're looking at the monitors. Once they look at the monitors, they're seeing what the camera sees. And all of a sudden, they see it. And when they do... Everyone and everyone at home is the same thing. They see it too. They've had the real tight shot. They couldn't see it. And once he backs up, the camera backs up, they see it. The entire studio shrieked in horror. I mean, it's like everybody went, oh my God. They, 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 were, they reacted to it because they saw it on the monitor. I could only imagine what those people at home, the thousands and thousands of home watching, went. I can imagine, wow, they had to do the same thing. Oh, so, for real? Yeah. So it was so it's a, it was such a big moment that Les had to calm the studio crowd. Whoa, whoa, wait, everybody. Oh, it's okay. It's okay, you know. And he explains what they're looking at. He, he explains that this is a shot from the match last night between Bob Armstrong and the great Mephisto that never even happened. It actually never took place. And then he asked Bill Kincaid, the director, to back the video up. So Kincaid backs up the video, and then Les welcomes his guest, Dick Steinborn, while the video is being backed up. And then the, all of a sudden, the, the fire image behind him disappears. So Steinborn, but he's seen the shot, <laughs> and he's as blown away as the studio audience and the fans at home. So he begins to question Les. He goes, well, was that a ball of fire I just saw around Bob Armstrong's head? <laughs> and he asks Les that, and uh, Les very solemnly says, Yes, Dick, it was. That's exactly what it was. Well, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so, you know, Dick's like, he's like everybody else at home. Like, wow, did I see what I thought I saw? You know, so then a larger piece. Then they roll that larger piece of a video from the night before. So and when this piece starts to roll, it, it shows both Bob and Armstrong and Mephisto. They're being introduced in the center of the ring. 
Bob starts uh, to his corner. He's starting to remove his jacket, and he heads toward the corner. And Mephisto, who's still dressed in all of his flowing silk robes and has got his terminal, he kind of follows Armstrong toward the corner. And uh, then he stops and he turns his back to Armstrong. And he's doing something that the camera can't see. And then all of a sudden, when Bob turns and starts in his direction, he hurls this giant fireball when Bob turned around. Wow. Uh, studio audience watched it again, and they responded to fame the first time. They were like, whoa, God. And the Steinborn, he's sitting there on the, on the camera, and he jumps backward in his chair. It's like, oh, he scared him again. And you know, wow, what the heck is this all about? It was the most uh, awe-inspiring and definitive moment in Southeastern wrestling uh, history so far. I mean, wow. wow, that was just an unbelievable opening to the show. It got everybody twice, you know, not just once, but two times. So as soon as that fire hit Bob and he went to the mat, let's call for the director to stop the video. Basically, what happened after that is Bob just rolled all over the ring and we had to go down there, me and Jimmy both. And, and get him stopped and put a towel on him and get him out of there. Just about the time this is all going on, the bell rings for the first TV match of the day. And guess who enters the studio after just seeing that? The great Mephisto. Uh. I mean, the studio went dead silent. It was like, oh, my God, there he is. <laughs> and Steinborn was obviously shocked as well as the studio. I mean, he was like, it was the most quiet moment I'd ever seen at that studio in the 15 months that we'd been taping there. I mean, that shut the crowd down, just uh, Mephisto coming around the corner and into the studio. Everybody went silent. So Les and Steinborn, they went back to discussing the video while this match is going on. And they talked a little bit about Bob Armstrong's condition and the fact that he had had to re return home to Marietta, Georgia. Uh, they'd gotten no word about uh, what had happened to him yet. It was only one night. In fact, it was 12 hours later, basically. You know, so uh, nobody knew what his condition was and uh, how long he was going to be out. They really didn't have much they could talk about, Bob. But they didn't need much time because Mephisto went there and there and he annihilated, as he called him, another infidel. <laughs> he, he went in and destroyed the poor job boy. And uh, so... Steinborn, he left the set immediately, and Louis Tillet joined Great Mephisto, who came to the set, and they watched a match from the night before called a bouncer match between Louis Tillet and Ron Wright. Uh, Les didn't even speak to Mephisto. I mean, Mephisto, he'd, everybody was pretty much, uh, well, like, who, what's this dude all about? So we have part of that actual audio from this video segment is Tillet and Mephisto talking over this video of this bouncer match. And, and you're going to notice during this audio that Tillett's going to refer to Bob Armstrong as being one of the bouncers around the ring in this audio. Mm. And that's because he was. He was burned in the match after this match that they're watching. So that's why they see Bob Armstrong and you don't see him the next match he gets burned in. So uh, Louis Tillett talks a little bit about the strength of Bob Armstrong. <laughs> and then you hear a little bit from Mephisto. You get to hear for the first time his accent and uh, kind of what what he's all about. And uh, he's going to make a little reference to Bob Armstrong in this same same fire event. So, uh, Lou, uh, out there in California, my man, uh, can you roll that tape for us? 
Well, we've got a film of you and Ron Wright as the feud rages on. Let's get into that film well, right now. Let's look at it. Let's see what's happening. There's four men around that ring out there. That's right. And they were all against me. Look at that there. It took three men to... Well, no, that's how I'm strong. That man is strong. Yes, well, let me tell you. This, this explains the fans. This is a bouncer's match. Four men, one on each side of the ring. To throw but how come they all were uh, Ron Wright's friend? Well, I don't think Ron Wright jumped out of the ring, friend. That's why they didn't have to throw him back in. But here we see it once again now. Right. You're being pitched back right. into the you ring. You four men against one there. You call that fair? Well, I, I didn't pick the men to go around the ringside, but I'm sure that... Uh, well, I can tell you picked pick them, though. Don Carson I, out there? But even that, that didn't work, right? You see it there? And I had that man beat. Now, I want you to watch very closely. Watch closely where Bob Armstrong comes in and slam me off the top rope. You think that Ron Wright could have beat me without that? There is no way. There is no way. Well, there's Wright crawling on top of you there to get that count from the referee. All right, but look. We did take care of Armstrong, didn't we? Armstrong. You won't have to worry, Mr. Lett, about Armstrong. I, I don't think that he will be around for quite a while, if ever. Well, we saw the film while our time, burned. The next time that I get into the ring, with the alliance that I have with the great Mephisto now, I don't think we'll have to worry about... Ground right anymore. Anybody else? Mr. Tuck. And the great Mephisto, and we'll be back right after this. It was a re in review immediately after this video that was described, you know, uh, by Tillette and Mephisto. After they finished their little speech here, they watched the bouncer match. They watched Bob Armstrong pick up Louis Tillette from the floor and throw him from the floor over the top rope into the ring. And then slide into the ring and slam him off the top rope. And Ron Wright got his win. So, I mean, you know, uh, Bob Armstrong was highly involved in this match. And then Ron Wright went in the match. But immediately following this match, they left the set. And out comes uh, Gladiator and Ron Wright. And now, all of a sudden, Dick Steinborn has got on uh, a mask. And he's... <laughs> So, you know, we're already starting this thing. Steinborn's been out there. Now he leaves. He comes back. It's Ron Wright and the Gladiator. And nobody knows it's Dick Steinborn. You know, at this point, they're, they're like, well, this is a new guy, another new wrestler. So, and they're going to talk about the upcoming match. And they're talking about their upcoming match is going to be the next Friday night with Tillette and Mephisto, the two guys that just left the set. So, uh, Lou, uh, if, you, if you're ready out there... Uh, We've got another piece of audio here. It's from that actual interview. And the great Mephisto. Let me tell you one thing. I think the man just stepped out here and proved himself again, what he did to me and to Bob Armstrong. Well, let me tell you something, Mephisto. When we get the ring with you this coming Friday night in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I get you to the position that I want you in, I'll make you pay for what you did to me, and not only to McCurry, and not only to Bob Armstrong and whoever else you burned in this wrestling business, and I'll ask these wrestling fans, to the thousands that sit up in those stands, we'll give you thumbs up or give you thumbs down. And you bring your thumbs, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll put them down, and that's where Miss Fisto's going. Down, once and for all, we'll have an end to this. Ron, just think it's more down to two single matches because I know you want Louis to land. That's right. And this one will be quite an interesting match because all I'm going to do is turn this man loose. I've never seen anybody mad and upset in my life, and I feel like just turn him loose and let him go. He's going to do the job in there for both of us. There you're ready from Ron Wright to Gladiator. It's a great match coming up with a series of great matches on Friday night, Knoxville Show, Howie Park. 
Now I want to thank again, obviously the Hills Brothers out of Knoxville that's sending us these remarkable looks back into time. And uh, I wish we had the video, believe me, to go with these audio segments. Uh, that would really be great. So, but, uh, you know, now as the show proceeded here, Les had announced last week the NWA world champion Terry Funk was coming to Knoxville to defend his title on October 10th, 1976. In this show's personality profile, which is going to be done live, uh, he announces that the Southeastern officials have chosen who's going to face Terry Funk in October for the world championship match. Uh, he invites me to come out and bring my trophy that I'd won the week before from Tora Tanaka, won back my television trophy when Jimmy Golden actually drop kicked him off the top row and I pinned him. But uh, n- either way, I was the new Southeastern TV champion. I brought my trophy out and set it down and uh, I joined him. Big round of applause, obviously, from the studio crowd. We're doing it live. They're sitting there in the next studio. They can see us uh, through the big opening between the two studios. And he explains the process that the officials went through to make their decision about who's going to get this shot at the champion. He explains that of all the men considered, I was the only one that had beaten both the Funk brothers in their career. And I was the man. (laughs) You know, pretty simple, actually. He said the officials believed that those two wins, more than any others, qualified me for the title shot. I thanked him and the officials that had selected me, and I promised the fans that I was going to do my very best to be the first wrestler to win the world title in the state of Tennessee. So, match is a long way off. It's two months off, but we're starting the process of building for this world championship. And we have one more piece of audio from that TV of Saturday, July 31st, 76. Jimmy Golan was scheduled to meet Tanaka again for the Southeastern title on the following Friday night. And there was a blockbusting exhibition that day, and and it was truly a blockbusting exhibition. Tort Tanaka was going to break the four-inch blocks, concrete blocks, and he had some boards, too, and Homer was setting them up for him. Homer actually had the microphone out there with him. So during the course of this exhibition, Tanaka broke some of these blocks and some of these boards with chops. Some of them he broke with his elbow. And one of them, the concrete block, four inches thick, he broke with his forehead. Wow. It's like, wow. So yeah. during this exhibition, Jimmy Golden goes out to the set, and he sits there with Les and Dick Steinborn, who's still there, and he watches this exhibition live. And uh, they're breaking the blocks just maybe 20 feet away from him. Yeah. If I was Jimmy, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, man. <laughs> what have I got myself into here? So Jimmy and Steinborn... They become buddies at this point. And uh, Steinborn, they've been working out together. Steinborn's trying to help young guys. He was a great about that. And he was he was trying to help Jimmy prepare for this second title shot with Tanaka the following Friday night. So in this audio clip you're about to hear, you're going to hear the end of the demonstration. And like I said, Homer had a microphone. And at the end of this demonstration, Tanaka makes a reference to Golden. But pay attention to his his uh, lack of lack of whatever language he's speaking, you have a hard time understanding what Tanaka is saying. But anyway, you can understand golden. It gets golden out there, and you can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely understand that even, you know. Right. Uh, and he, he's a high. You, you have to hear it. And then they close out this demonstration, 
Dick Steinborn closes out, and he adds a comment of his own at the end about how Jimmy's preparing for this match. So, uh, Lou, uh, let's hear that audio of Jimmy Golden and Dick Steinborn. I don't know, but Mr. Jimmy and Mr. Gladiator, you try to find one defense who did. Ha! In the hot. Okay, thank you. Well, we've got a little demonstration. Yes, General. Gentlemen, we sure appreciate this, and uh, fans, as we say, this is just one portion of what these two men are doing, possibly two to three hours every day in preparation for this match coming up, right? In conclusion, Les, let me just say this. Jimmy's not going in that ring with a big old piece of board to hit the knocker in the stomach. He's going to do it with speed and science and youth, and I've worked out with him, and I think we have another champion right here. Jimmy, Diggy, Gladiator, thank you very much. Okay, and there it is. We hope you've enjoyed this. And we'll be back with personality profile right after this. So I hope fans out there could get a feel for Tanaka and for Homer. Hopefully we're going to get a lot more of these audios. Uh, I really appreciate the ones that we've gotten. It may be a few weeks before we get more, but we will get more audios. I really, really love them. Hey, it was always really something special on the TV taping when you had something like an arm wrestling demonstration. Or as you said, Tanaka was going to be breaking concrete blocks and boards. It always added something to the TV show that you kind of thought, wow, I'm in on this. And I didn't have to pay to go to, to the big event, but I'm still going to the big event. But, but to, to me, that really added a lot to a TV show. Yeah. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, and you know, it, there, you can't, you can, when you watch something like that and you see those blocks and that concrete shatter and slide across the concrete floor, <laughs> and, a, and a guy does it with his forehead, he breaks a four inch block with his forehead. It's like, whoa, my goodness gracious. I mean, it's right. people that say, yeah, oh, that wrestling isn't real. They have to go, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, that, wait, was, that was that real. Was real. Yeah. <laughs> that was real. That's good stuff and great stuff on the actual audio too as well. This is a, it's a good place to take a break. Let's do that. This Studcast is going to continue in a moment right here. Super Studcast number 31 has become another classic look at professional wrestling. The unsung heroes of the ring, referees, never got the credit for what they brought to each match. Ron, as almost every other wrestler, has so much respect for what the third man in the ring brought to wrestling. Part two of his unique and fascinating tribute to the man in stripes is just as educational as part one. The entire show is more than three hours. Find it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash Studcast. In part two, you'll meet three more of the best referees in history. Learn what they had to know, why they were so important and so hated, and how one of them paid the ultimate price with a broken neck in a match. Tommy Young, Mac McMurray, and Larry Brock laid it on the line thousands of times at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Only the Tennessee Stud will take you this deep inside the sport we all love. Hey, we are back. David Summers with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And remember, every Studcast, beginning with episode number one, going back over three years, can be found at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Catch up on 100 years of wrestling history at tnstud.com and maybe snag the latest T-shirt. All right, so, Ron, where are we riding to now? 
Well, we're going to find out what happened on Friday, August 6th. Uh, we've talked about the television. We prepared everybody for what the matches are. And, uh, and as I said earlier, we're back in the amphitheater this time, thank goodness, and out of that small Jacobs building where we were before. So in the first match, George McCrary against Kurt Von Steiger ends up the 20-minute time limit draw. But it was a great match. George McCrary is a good little wrestler. He's a great amateur, as a matter of fact. Uh, maybe not as good a pro as he was amateur, but he he is an exciting young guy to watch in the ring. The Von Steigers are both good quality workers. And this 20-minute time limit draw sets the tone for the entire night. Mike Stallings in the second match uh, faced off against Carl Von Steiger. And this one got a little bit out of hand. Ended up quite differently than the first one. This one ended up in a double disqualification, both guys getting disqualified. Third match of the night was that tag match that we talked about here with Ron Wright and the Gladiator going up against Louis Tillette and the great Mephisto. Uh, this was just a great match, period. Uh, Ron Wright and the Gladiator won. Uh, the Gladiator actually pinned Louis Tillette in the middle of the ring. But after it was over, Ron Wright went after Mephisto. And uh, I don't know. I mean, Ron, Ron was a great guy. He, he, everybody was upset with Bob Armstrong and get what happened to Bob and Ron Wright, I guess uh, kind of saved it all to the end of the match. And, and after it was all over and their hands were in the air, he just went from a fisto. The crowd went crazy at that point and Stallings, it got nasty. Uh, nobody could pull them apart. And finally Stallings and McCray, both of the baby faces from the earlier matches came down to the ring and they helped pull Ron Wright out of there. They're going to be returning the next week. Ron Wright against the great Mephisto, and they were going to be wrestling for the great Mephisto's mid-American title. So he is a champion. He is. This will be his first title defense since coming to Southeastern. The fourth match was Southeastern Championship match between Jimmy Golden and the champion Tor Tanaka. Tanaka got his hand raised. Uh, Jimmy fought a real tough and strong battle, and it took Homer to get involved at the end to get Tanaka the victory. But uh, Tanaka ended up getting his hand raised. He retained the Southeastern Championship. The main event was the steel cage match between me and Don Carson. As I mentioned earlier, it's a bona fide steel cage for the first time in Southeastern history. For the first time in Knoxville history, there was a steel cage there when there should have been. Because the rings were 20 feet by 20 feet square, the big ring, outside ring, studio rings were 16 by 16. This cage had to fit. A 20 by 20 foot ring and it actually was beyond that it was 22 by 22 and it was about uh, 12 feet high it was certainly a it's beautiful <laughs> if, a, if a steel cage can be beautiful it was beautiful we had a bloody one again that week same as the week before uh, this time though something happened that had never happened to Carson before in all of his time at Southeastern after I won the match and the cage door was open and I started to leave the ring, he attacked me again. Like he hadn't had enough, you know, he never knew about what Don Carson was going to do. So we just fought right back inside again. And this time, before he could get out of there, I started doing him. I went for his glove, and for the first time ever, I managed to take Don Carson's glove off. First time in Southeastern history that anyone had removed his glove. And when I did, I went for him. <laughs> And boy, did he run. I mean, he, I wanted to hit him with his own glove so bad. 
But uh, he beat me to the cage door and out he went. So I went back in the middle of the ring and I put that glove on my right hand. I raised it up into the air above my head, man. And that big crowd that night, the biggest one in Chihuahua Park so far, the crowd was thunderous as I stood there, man. Uh, on my way to the dressing room that night, it might have taken me 15 minutes to get to the dressing room. I was mobbed by the crowd as I came out of the cage. It was a great feeling to see that type of enthusiasm among all those people. How many folks do you think were actually there that night? Well, it was a little over 6,000 for the first time. We, but we hadn't stopped yet, though. I mean, uh, the next Friday night uh, that we're going to the next studcast, we're going to talk about an even bigger one. In fact, we're going to break the all-time Chihuahua Park record the following Friday night. So every city that we ran that week, <laughs> the week of uh, August the 6th, sold out. All of them sold out. Uh, we wrestled in front of 17,000 fans that week. Every top wrestler, uh, which were a lot of them at this point, we had about 16 guys on the card, and probably 12 of them were top wrestlers. The top 12 guys all made over $1,000, which was equal to $4,600 in today's money. Lord. Yeah. Not a bad week for boys in 1976, $1,000. Uh, and that's why today's training segment that we didn't get to finish, the one that started with the beginning of the show, was so important for me. I mean, that crowd. And the one the next Friday night that breaks the all-time record, it really, really put my emphasis more than ever on getting into that Coliseum. So next week, uh, uh, Southeastern, is, its future is really going to begin next week as we start to finish out this today's training segment next week with how we're going to set up and how often we're going to go to the Coliseum and what's going to happen once we get there. Yeah, no doubt. Things are really happening in Knoxville now, Ron. So we can't wait to hear the end of today's training next week. So now I think it's time for us to have a seat under that learning tree once again. What was the question once again? What are we doing, Ron? Well, this week's learning tree question uh, came from, oddly enough, another podcast. <laughs> and I welcome questions from everywhere. Uh, you know, fans, podcasts, I don't care where the questions come from. I just want them to be good. So this question comes from the Booking the Territory podcast, and they sent me a question. They, they, they wanted to know, what do you think of Flair as traveling NWA champ, and do you think it hurt the National Wrestling Alliance in the 1980s that the champ was losing so often and then regaining the belt days later? Great questions. Really, really good questions. So uh, let's tackle that first question first. Uh, First question they had was, what do you think of Flair as, a, as traveling NWA champ? Well, my first thought, and to be quite blunt about it, I think he was one of the best champions of all time. Uh, but in order to talk about Flair, I want to back up and let's talk about a little briefly about the four guys that led him to that title, the four guys that represented the NWA prior to him, because I've wrestled all of them. <laughs> so I got a pretty good idea of, of what it was like. So. Dory Funk Jr. Let's start with Dory Funk Jr. He was one of the best tactical and technical wrestlers in history, in my opinion. Uh, he had an uncanny knack, Jr., about getting heat without really healing. But he was not a throw your punches at you, a jerk your hair, a jerk use your trunks. 
he didn't do any of that, but he had such great heat. He was just beautiful at how much wrestling he could do and how much heat he could get by just wrestling. He was magnificent at leading a match. He was the classic leader of a match, and he was always in phenomenal shape. And he had to be, because back in those days, you did those one-hour Broadways, man, uh, day after day and time after time. If you weren't in shape as the world heavyweight champion back in Doy Funk Jr.'s time, you were in trouble because promoters didn't like to beat their baby faces. They wanted those hour Broadway matches, and boy, Funk could give them to you. Uh, the next one after him was Jack Briscoe, who was the consummate wrestler. And, and I put him next, even though Harley Race won the belt before Jack did. But Jack's reign was postponed uh, by a brief switch to Harley Race, which was under, <laughs> which was under questionable circumstances. Uh, and, and we'll get into that maybe. And we've probably already talked about it, I'm sure, about uh, uh, maybe what happened with uh, Dory Sr. not wanting Junior to lose to a baby face. Uh, not wanting him to lose to Jack Briscoe in particular. A lot of issues going there. Harley Race became the champion for just a short period of time, and then Jack beat Harley. And so Jack basically is the second of these four wrestlers I want to talk about. Jack was right up there, in my opinion, with the great Luthez when it came to wrestling ability. He had such legitimate accomplishments as an amateur uh, that his winning the NWA belt was just unquestionable by fans. Why couldn't he be world champion? He'd beat every amateur in the country. He'd lost one match in his life. I mean, he was unquestionably world championship material. And he, too, just like Dory Jr., was in phenomenal shape. And he did countless one-hour broadways during his reign. Uh, his greatest attribute to me, Jack's, was to be able to work with both baby faces and heels. And that was really different. You know, most NWA champions were heels. And Jack was a baby face. And when he went into a territory, you could book heels against Jack because the fans loved Jack Briscoe and they wanted to see him beat the hell out of the heels. So you couldn't lose when you had Jack in there. The next guy that came along after Jack was Terry Funk. And by golly, Terry Funk was a wonderful combination of skill and absolute craziness. I mean, you never knew what to expect with Terry Funk, and neither did the fans. That's what was great about him. They didn't know what to expect either, man. Right. And he was absolutely explosive. I mean, but he was also an excellent wrestler on the mat. He could do it all. His interviews, in my opinion, put him in a class of his own. He just had tremendous skill as an interviewer, and he loved to do those outside interviews, not in studios. He wanted to get on his horse and ride somewhere. He wanted to cut somebody's head off with a chainsaw, you know, if it's a log or whatever. He got animated. His interviews weren't just loud and boisterous. They were animated. They were beautiful, fantastic stuff. Mm -hmm. Those two brothers, Dory Jr. and Terry Funk, were as different as day and night. Uh, I spent a lot of time with those guys, and they were. I mean, Dory was totally different than Terry, uh, but they were absolutely wonderful talents. Uh, no doubt about it. Phenomenal world champions. The next one we'll talk about is Harley Race. And uh, he was the champion, to me, that exuded something far beyond what his body looked like. 
he looked at Harley, and he didn't have that Jack Briscoe physique. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, his body was not a lot different than what a lot of other people were, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a fear factor to Harley. <laughs> and it, it wasn't just the wrestlers. It was the fans that felt yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, when you looked at Harley Race, you didn't you didn't look at him to see, well, he ain't got any shoulders and God, he got big belly on him. And uh, but it was that look he had, and you were just like, Oh, but I wouldn't mess with him. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. So all that toughness that he had to me just shined through. And that, and he had that laid back and confident exterior. You know, I mean, when he did interviews, he, he didn't have to do any got a gravelly voice, but what he was saying was so confident in himself as, you know, I got it, come get it. You know, I, I just, I loved him. Uh, you know, he was maybe my favorite of all four of these to work with. I really love working with Harley. Harley, I think, for, as far as the NWA world champions were, he was cut from a different mold than all the rest. I he think was, he looked like your dad right before you were about to get a whooping. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what he, because he looked, he had kind of had the dad bod, but anyway, oh, yeah. he had that look that, uh Oh, here he comes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Dave. Yeah. That's, that's very descriptive. And then, and it's not like I would know what that would in any way. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you never got one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, now we get to the nature boy. So I definitely had a longer relationship with him than any other world champion. I met the Nature Boy in 1973 in St. Louis. Uh, he worked with me for the first time ever in Southeastern in 1975 in Knoxville, long before he ever became world champion. He was a combination to me of the great Buddy Rogers. He had the hair, Rogers's hair, and he had kind of Rogers' persona, but he had a sheer electricity about him in the ring. Uh, I loved his work. Uh, I loved his interviews. And what I really liked was his championship lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he not only was the champion, mm-hmm. but he looked like he was the champion, <laughs> you <laughs> know. And he, and he he carried that uh, persona with him more than probably any other uh, of all the champions that I spoke of here. Everywhere Flair went, he looked the part, and he lived the part. <laughs> he didn't just look it. Uh, he was definitely one of the best, uh, you know, and uh, I hope these guys, uh, you know, get, that's, that's what I really felt about Flair. So I'm going to answer their second question now. Uh, do you think it hurt the National Wrestling Alliance in the 1980s that the champ was losing so often and then regaining the belt days later? That's a really good question, and it actually happened. So, you know, my quick answer again right off the top of my head is yes. But I think there's a lot more here to this question than meets the eye. Now, first, I think it was a mistake to start having the NWA champion losing so much. Uh, it, it had not been done with the previous four champions before Flair. I don't think any of them basically lost until they lost. <laughs> you know, they, they, they went years uh, before losing, you know, and, 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 then, and then things changed when Flair became champion. So I, I thought, uh, you know, that uh, it didn't happen to the guys before him, but then all of a sudden it started happening to Flair. But I don't believe it had anything to do with Flair and, and what he may have thought. I don't think, you know, because as a world champion, you got no control over what finishes you're going to do. You know, you have no control of what the promoters are going to expect out of you or ask you to do even. 
Uh, so when you go into work in a different territory, you don't really know what to expect. There are certain things that you can't do. I mean, you can't drop the belt to somebody and you and uh, and not have permission from the people in at the uh, in the head in St. Louis. Most of the time, with Sam Mutznick, uh, you couldn't you couldn't control what the promoters are going to want you to do or ask you to do. You right. could only do what you thought you should do. So the responsibility to control the finishes came basically from St. Louis when Mutznick was involved. And then from the other presidents, the presidents after Mustard disappeared, then it came from them. And that was about the time that the swapping of the belt became prevalent. I don't believe it happened very much during Muchnick's run as president of the NWA. I believe that when Muchnick disappeared from the NWA and retired, that that's when we started to see these, these uh, short-term champions, let me call them that, I guess. So I never asked it. I never asked, nor did I ever expect an NWA champion to put anyone in my territory over one night and get the belt back before he left at the end of the week. I didn't ever ask for it. And uh, when territories began to feel that that was necessary, I think it was because the territory and the owners and the bookers there had failed to create enough legitimate contenders for the title is the reason they got into that situation. Mm. So, And I have more reasons, too. I think some territories back themselves into a corner by always allowing the same top babyface to get the title shot. Yeah. Then after scheduling the champion, then they made a second mistake. They started scheduling the world champion too often, and they booked him consistently against that same top star. So instead of doing what they had done during Briscoe's days and Dory Jr.'s days, and having those guys do the hour time limit matches with the champion, that didn't hurt anybody. When you did an hour, you gave the fans more than their money's worth. And they started instead having these fluky finishes that fans didn't like. The fans said, oh, I, I hated the finish of the match. Well, nobody ever said that about an hour Broadway. They saw something unreal. They saw something that normal athletes can't do. They can't wrestle an hour without a break. It's an almost impossible feat to do an hour match. So they got lazy. Uh, and instead of these hour broadways, uh, they started doing their little flunky deals. And eventually, they kept putting their stars with the champion, and they never won. So it eventually started to kill off their stars, which made sense. The guy, he's had 18 champs since to win the title. He ain't won. What's wrong with him? <laughs> Right. right. I yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what else are you going to say? Yeah. You know? so, yeah. So it was an obvious way out, you know, that they, they ended, but, but it ended with that baby face losing the belt. It was an obvious way out to say, okay, let's put the belt on him. But Flair's going to be here. Let's put the belt on him on Monday night, and Flair's leaving on Saturday. We'll put the belt back on Flair on Saturday. At <laughs> least so and so won. Yeah. Right. But right. he also lost again on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It didn't make sense for anybody. So it was an obvious way for Babyface to end out. To end this is by losing the belt a few days later. Uh, so nothing was accomplished. And all it did was diminish the champion. I mean, yeah. it was simple. So I think many of the territories relied too heavily on having the NWA champ there just to draw a house. I think they should have done a better job of booking 
And they should have come up with more angles using their own guys and use the champion list and fill their buildings with their guys. I mean, that was the way to keep your business running great and not depend on having to bring the world champion in to get a full house. Mm-hmm. So I think it the first of these temporary swaps may have started with Tommy Rich. I'm not sure, but I know he was working for Jim Barnett. And I remember when I got the news that Tommy Rich had won the title and then dropped it back three days later, I was very concerned about it. I knew that that would be the first of many uh, as a precedent that's going to be set and that other territories are going to expect to get their turn to do these same short-term title switches. And uh, and I think that's what it turned into. You know, Florida had to do it, but Dusty, uh, other territories did it. So uh, I hope, guys, uh, with, uh, with the Book in the Territory podcast, I hope that answers your question. That's what I feel happened, and I feel the way it should have been handled, it wasn't handled. And, uh, and I, want to, I want to thank you guys. Uh, it's always good to hear from others that work to entertain and educate fans through podcasts. I have, in my three years, learned that, uh, that to uh, appreciate guys that are willing to do podcasts uh, because it's a commitment. It's a, it's a real commitment. And you are absolutely one of the best. And before we bail out on this, as I recall, Maybe once a year we saw Harley race, and I'm talking about the Dothan, Alabama market many years ago. Maybe once a year we saw Ric Flair, and it was in that it was in that one hour main event match that you talk about. And it seemed like the local wrestler, the 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 maybe the babyface at home, came that close to winning that match, but Harley Race still left as the world heavyweight champion. Yeah, and that's the way it was. That's the way it was when it was big. Yeah, uh, it took it did take a lot of emphasis off the world title, yeah, and uh, and it did affect uh, how much did you look forward to the world champion coming to town, yeah. and uh, you know, do you happen to be talking about Dothan, which was a town that uh, was within the southeastern and continental territory, and we didn't believe in having the world champion, but a couple of times a year because when he came, he meant something. Yeah. If he's going to be there every month, he don't mean nothing after a while. But if he's just there once or twice a year, people are going to come to see him. And that's when you have that one-hour match, and they leave there going, wow, I saw something unbelievable tonight. And it didn't hurt the champion, nor did it hurt your baby face. Oh, absolutely not. And the buildup was incredible for quite a while, as you said, as you got ready for that champion to come to town. And then you you were so involved with that match, you thought the local guy was going to win in the end. But somehow, the the nature boy whipped out the leg lock and it was all over. But anyway, great recognition from others in the same line of work is always complimentary. And again, another great job on answering both of those questions from the stud. All right, you can find the stud on Facebook. Simply like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page, and automatically become friends with a legend. You can also like the new author, Ron Fuller Welch, Facebook page. To become a friend there, too, that's as simple as well. Get news about Ron's great novel, Brutus. To get your autographed copy, go to tnstud.com and click Stud Store. It's only $29.99. Super Studcast number 31, part two, now available. And, Ron, I bet you got something to say about this one. Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, part two is just absolutely unbelievable. I thought part one of this, the unsung heroes of the ring, the referee story, 
was just absolutely great with Nick Patrick and Bill Alfonso. But gosh, part two has a, got one tremendous referee, Tommy Young, who was he was considered the best referee of the 1980s, I believe. I've heard that. I said it a lot of him. Also, Mac McMurray, who was my great referee in southeastern Knoxville, and Larry Brock, who was a southeastern Pensacola head referee. Uh, so, you know, these referees have phenomenal stories, especially Tommy Young, who breaks his neck in a match. Unbelievable. Wow. So, you know, I mean, uh, uh, referees gave so much more than they get credit for. And uh, this Super Studcast number 31, I highly recommend if if uh, you want to learn all aspects of the sport, uh, this one gives you a feel for referees that uh, you will never, you'll never get past. You'll never get past it. It's kind of like pulling the tent flap back and taking a peek inside. All right. So where are we headed next week? Well, we're going to conclude, obviously, those negotiations that we've talked about today and today's training. Uh, and those are the negotiations to, to start making the move from Southeastern for Southeastern into that Knoxville Civic Coliseum. Uh, next week's Studcast 2, we're going to witness the biggest card and show in the history of Southeastern wrestling to this point. Uh, we're going to look at the depth of that fantastic card on Friday the 13th of August 1976. Uh, we're going to break all-time records in Chihuahua Park that night. We're going to talk about the great TV the Saturday before that's going to have the first ever world championship interview, Southeastern anyway, from Terry Funk. Uh, the learning tree question next week is going to be relevant to the studcast. From this studcast, as a matter of fact, it's a question about Don Carson and having the loaded glove. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I've had a lot of fans ask me, how can a guy get to wear the glove? What's that all about? So uh, I want to thank all my fans, as always, man, old and new. And there's a lot of new ones. It's amazing for joining me today. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there and others around you. And may God bless us all. And before we finish today, Ron, I've got to tell you about an upcoming surprise. In next week's break, we're going to play the entire audio of the first major review of your novel called Brutus. This review came from Florence Carmella and Jim Jacks, two of the best book reviewers in the world. They recently interviewed and reviewed Stephen King, no less, for his newest novel. I think fans are going to be blown away by what these two famous reviewers had to say about Brutus. There was some comparisons to one of the best books and movies of all time, Jaws. How about that? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Jeez, Dave. Uh, you know, well, so so besides everything else we got for next week's studcast, we're going to have a lion on board, too. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Hey, Ron, fans, fans need to hear this. All right, this is David Summers thanking you for joining us again today and reminding you that Ron Fuller's studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.